Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Nathan Collier, Director of Content here at Pursuit, with you here today, standing in for Jim and Cynthia. Today, you're going to hear an in-depth interview I had with Maui Guevara, who is a member of our legal advisory team here at Pursuit, and for sure, one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met on the topic of legal pricing. Maui began his career at Goldman Sachs as a financial analyst, and then he spent three years as a senior financial analyst at Latham & Watkins before joining our team here at Pursuit. Maui is an expert at market pricing for legal services. And as you'll hear, one of the questions he gets all the time when working with in-house teams is they ask him, how do I know if the price I'm paying my firms is a fair price? Which is a question that is relevant for both those of you who are listening from firms and also those of you from in-house teams. So in this episode, Maui shares how he answers that question to determine a fair price for legal services for both in-house teams and the firms they partner with. So as Jim would say, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the show. Hey, Mai, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Introduce yourself so people know who you are and, and, and why you're here. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me on, Nathan. My name is Mai Guevara. I am the Senior Manager of Legal Advisory at Pursuit. And essentially, my role and job is to help advise our clients through the process of using Pursuit and really how to get the most of the tools so that they can optimize their outside counsel engagement. Cool. When you say client, you mean you mean who? Yeah, our clients are some of the largest in-house law department companies in the world. You know, some of the Fortune 500s out there and even some international companies that we engage with. Biggest companies in the world. Yeah. And you LinkedIn, you have this phrase, and I'd love to sort of get you to sort of tell me more about it. You say, I am a storyteller, but my pen and paper, my pen and paper are data and analytics. Tell me about that. That actually started way back in in college. I, I really loved math. And there was something about math, something about data that really just spoke to me and made sense to me. It was the easiest way for me to understand things. And that carried throughout my career. Some all the things I was interested in, all the things that I was passionate about really revolved around numbers. And even before that, I actually liked fictional books and stories and fantasy settings and, and things of that nature. So those two passions kind of combined together to what I like doing now, which is revealing the story, revealing the narrative around some of the data that's out there. And that's really what I've tried to do throughout my career is enjoying the chase and the uncovering of what is actually behind numbers. So kind of just using that affinity to math, affinity to the data but then combining that with my desire to actually understand what it is that's driving some of those figures and numbers. Yeah. What, what is it about that? Like, do you see, when you look at a set of numbers, do you just you sort of start to see the story behind it, see what that's supposed to mean? That's exactly it. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, when I was a young kid, I actually told my mom I wanted to be an archaeologist because I saw Indiana Jones and I was like, oh, that's what I want to do. Then I found out what they actually do all day and they just sit in the sand and they slowly brush away dirt until they reveal you know, some of those bones and ancient artifacts. And I 
equate that to what I do now, where I have this disparate pieces of data, seemingly large data sets, huge numbers, and you slowly brush away, you slowly clean that data, you run analysis, and the story starts almost revealing itself to you before you even think about it. And you just get more and more context. So that's that's what it really is for me. It's it's a little bit of a puzzle where things start to fall together, fall in line, a story gets told. And even if, you know, sometimes actually very often it's against what I would initially think or what I would initially understand things to be. But yeah, just that slow process of the, having the data reveal itself. That's that can be very exciting. Well, I'm going to come back to that. But before we do that, so tell me, how, how did you come to Pursuit in the first place? Tell, tell me the story. Bring it up to the present. Started off actually, you know, being very data heavy, being very financial heavy. I was an analyst at Goldman Sachs right outside of college. Really, really hated banking and the culture <laughs> that was associated with it. Nothing to do with Goldman itself. I think just overall, the industry just wasn't my thing. I actually was a finance major in college. That was, I thought that was going to be the dream for me. But what I did like and the opportunity I did get to have at Goldman was actually some internal advising, some internal consulting. So again, taking that data, telling a story, having internal stakeholders, and then being able to communicate that to them. So I wanted to find something that was very similar. And I also wanted to find an industry that was a little bit younger, a little bit more wild, wild west to see, you know, if I can be one of the first people actually doing some of the cool things out there. And I found a pretty new team at Latham and Watkins. So at Latham, the pricing team was hiring for an analyst. I immediately took that role. And that's where I fell in love with the legal industry and the legal marketplace. The team at Latham is amazing. I have nothing but great things to say about them. They're doing some of the coolest stuff, some of the most innovative stuff in terms of legal pricing from the law firm side, the law firm perspective. And that's where I really learned about what it is to advise your clients and understand the concepts around the legal marketplace and the legal industry. And how I got to pursuit was that one day I saw or started seeing RFPs coming through the pursuit platform. And immediately in my mind, I was like, that's the future. That's the next step. That's where the industry is going. It's an open, transparent, wide marketplace. It's data, not just from one law firm, but from all the law firms and not just from the clients of that one law firm, but a broad range of clients. So now for the first time ever, you actually have a data-driven, open, transparent, wide marketplace. And I was just telling myself, you know, sitting at the desk that, hey, I'm having a great time here. I'm doing some really cool stuff, really great projects. But the things that I could be doing at Pursuit, things I'm going to be exposed to, the things that I will have the opportunity to build, that's going to be an industry-wide, huge, impactful change in the career, you know, my, my career trajectory and the things that I'm doing. So that's, right. that's how I ended up at Pursuit. The first opportunity I got to apply for a role, I took it. And haven't looked back or hesitated since. Michael, <laughs> what what was it about the RFPs that were so so different than what you were kind of doing before you started to see those? Yeah. So they were honestly, to be to be very frank, they were terrible in the beginning. <laughs> uh, you know, the the structure was off. There was no 
granularity to it, no transparency. It was sometimes even worse than just the email RFPs that we may be getting. But what I did see was a progression, that gradual growth into that I think is very, you know, a huge component of pursuit is the iteration. And what I did see is that things started to improve. Things started to go in a way where they're finding efficiencies, they're finding an approach, they're finding a philosophy to how to run the RFP process. And again, you know, data and the storytelling, I was, I was starting to pick up on the data points that Pursuit was picking up and, and being able to gather from the RFP responses. So in my mind, I was as I was responding to these things, you know, the average fixed fee price of a motion to dismiss is X. What's the hourly rate based on these assumptions? What, how can you answer question A, B, C, D? And in my mind, I was saying, oh my God, Pursuit is gathering all this information and all this data, not just from Latham, not just from our competitors in our AMLA bucket or global bucket. They must be gathering this for thousands and thousands of law firms out there across their broad base of clients. So that to me just clicked something in my head where I was like, this is different because this is something that's opening the door, something that historically hasn't you know, had any light shown on it. A lot of firms keep their pricing information close to their chest. A lot of clients keep their pricing information close to their chest. And I think this just provides an opportunity to get a little bit more visibility yeah. and a little bit more understanding into the market. What does an average day look like for you? today like are you are you spend all your time digging into those kinds of kinds of issues so the first primary function really again is advisory right i'm here to consult with our clients i sit down with our clients talk to them about the objectives and the things that they're trying to achieve with the rfp and the work that they're doing and even more broadly or strategically i talk to them about the idea of how they should be engaging their outside counsel how they should be thinking about the value and the cost and associating that with better and more efficient processes. So it can be something as broad as thinking through, hey, here's the business rules that we should establish so that your company knows when and how to engage your outside counsel. Or it could be something as narrow as a client having a real estate portfolio that they want to be pricing, but they don't quite know how to structure the pricing components, what questions to ask their law firms, how do you get the most out of that RFP and out of that engagement. So it's that type of advisory work that is being done on a day-to-day basis. But on the flip side of that, uh, I really try to stay abreast of not just the industry, but again, all that data, all that information we have internally. So I'm always knee-deep in all the information that's flowing through our systems, looking at all of the data that we have, looking at industry information, and taking that and putting it together in a way that I can package all that information back and leverage all that back for our clients. So, so that's really the two things. I'm always playing catch up with what's the latest and greatest in the industry and, and all the data that we have internally, and then taking all that back to our clients and making sure that they are able to use it and they are able to leverage all that information. Talk to the people who are trying to figure this stuff out, who maybe are, they're, they're who you used to be, right? On the outside looking in, they don't have access to, you know, all of the internal data that, that you do these days. What are some things that you've learned about legal pricing 
both like while working at Latham Watkins, but also working here at Pursuit, like what, what, what could you teach people today that would be helpful to them? Is it pricing models, AFAs? What, what are some things that you know that they should know? Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of the information that has been out there and established, right? The AFA structures, the, you know, clock has the legal operations framework in mind. And then there's great organizations such as LVN who have the law firm structures in mind and best practice operations there. I think what's missing is really a different perspective and views about the philosophy of thing, like combining those two things. And having the concept of it, you know, I, I always say it's, it's, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg where the law firms will not change because they're not being rewarded for that change, right? Just thinking about the concept of the billable hours and increasing rates and the associate competition. There's no benefit to not stepping away from that system. And then the clients are not going to drive the change because they don't think the law firms will change. So if there's nothing changing in the ecosystem, no one is changing. And, And I think that is driven from this fear of, of risk. So what I would definitely say and what I've learned is that you should try new things. We need to encourage our clients, encourage our law firms to try new things, to try new avenues, to open their minds up to different ways of understanding the value and the proposition of what it means to work with outside counsel. You know, all the time I hear our clients saying, hey, I had never thought about using law firm X before. And now that I'm in this open marketplace that I put it out broadly, they're crushing this work that I would never have thought about. You know, I didn't even know that they were in this space. And then vice versa. I will have law firms come to us and say, hey, I would have never priced this as a fixed fee because I don't know if, if the price I'm giving is correct. I'm basing it off the data that I have. And I don't know if the client's going to turn around and say, you're, you're kidding me. Why would you ever charge, you know, charge that price for this work? But now that I see when I'm in an open marketplace, I'm with my peers. You know, I'm within this market. I'm more confident in that price. I'm more confident in that value. So shifting that paradigm a little bit, you know, I challenge a lot of these law firms and a lot of our clients to just look at things in a different way and potentially finding different solutions to the same objectives without having you know, those, these historical preconceived notions of the unmovable object of the law firm and the unstoppable force of the budgets and these in-house teams. It seems like there's a cycle, right? Where there's every year it's like the billable hours go up and there's this fight between what, what's, the, what's the hourly rate going to be for the next year, the next two years. And that, that cycle just has been that, it seems like it's been that way forever. It just seems like it'll continue to go on forever. I know from our conversations in the past that like you like to get in there and, and just introduce people to new ways of doing things and thinking about things. And what I will say too, is that, you know, I can be known as a law firm sympathizer a little bit uh, at, at Pursuit. And, and that's because I do have a more nuanced perspective mm-hmm. on AFA structures and the billable hour. I don't necessarily think that killing the billable hour is the final solution for the industry as a whole, but I think that we need to remove the concept and idea that measuring value has to be done with the billable hour. Yeah. I think the billable hour has many advantages. 
in terms of risk association, right? It's the least risky for both parties. And then in terms of simplicity, it is the simplest pricing structure. No one has to think about what goes into a billable hour pricing structure. You don't have to consider the value as a as a law as a client and as a law firm, you don't have to think about, you know, how do you price this? And so there's a way in a world where the billable hour is the correct solution for a particular piece of work. But I think it's just the over-reliance on that concept and the over-reliance on that idea has made it so that the industry is a little complacent. No one's really going out there to understand, is there a better way to do this? Is there, is there a more efficient way to do this? Is there a way that's even more beneficial to both sides? And not just because it's the simpler way to do things. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty good segue because you and I have talked a lot about this concept that um, you talk, you've talked about and written about, which is true market price. Um, it, tell me about that. Where did that come from? How, is that a, something that you talk about when you get asked questions from, from both in-house teams and, and firms? Uh, that Those have always been sort of fascinating conversations. I'd love to hear you talk about that a bit more. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that idea and that concept really comes from this asymmetry and information asymmetry that happens in the market, particularly in the legal market, right? It's a, this is a very old economics concept where one party knows a little bit more information than another party, and that leads to inefficiencies in prices. So if you're the party that knows a little bit more, typically you're going to be advantaged when you're going into an engagement or going into a transaction, for example. And so that happens in the legal industry. Uh, law firms, like I said, all they know is their historicals. All they know is their historical data. So that's how they base their pricing. And then lockstep every year, they're going to be increasing their rates. And at the end of the day, even all their most complex AFA structures, a majority of law firms out there derive their AFAs from their hourly rates. So you can almost measure the same growth in hourly rates as the same growth they're going to be proposing those AFAs to. So the value even if it's an AFA, isn't really tied to the value of the work that the client is considering. It's almost tied to the growth of the hourly rates. And then vice versa, right? As a, as a client, you don't know the level of experience and expertise and overhead and whatever it may be that a law firm has to put into that work and service that they're providing you. you there's no really good way to understand that concept. So the idea of the true market price really comes from having this transparent and competitive marketplace, right? It's very, you know, economics 101. If you have a competitive marketplace, it's very transparent. You gain efficiencies, you gain an understanding of what the market, you know, supply and demand, what the market is actually saying the price for that service should be. So you have a client going out to the market asking their law firms, hey, I have this piece of work. What do you value or what would you value this piece of work at? A, B, C, D. And so from A, from B, from C, from D, they all put in a price. And sometimes it's, it's a perfect universe. They're all pretty close together. And you just determine the true market price. Right? You just confirmed essentially what the value of that work should be based on the market. The market is telling you, hey, we, the suppliers, this is what we're selling the service for. And they're going to be fairly closely aligned. Other times, you need a little bit more, an additional layer of transparency, an additional layer of competitiveness. And that's where, you know, one of the, the, the things that Pursuit does as a platform is reverse auctions. And that's where that comes in. 
where you add in an additional layer, where firms actually get immediate feedback back. They get to see where they are on the pricing spectrum, and then they get to make an internal assessment and say, hey, does it make economic sense for us as a business to provide that service at a specific price? Because right now, we're overpricing ourselves. Or hey, vice versa. Some firms will come in and they'll see, oh my God, we're underpricing our services. Look at us competing against all these other people and where we are. And then there's people that's right in the middle. But what we'll find and what we consistently find in our data is the consolidation, the contraction of those prices happens every time. There is a consistent movement towards that singular point, kind of that singular area where all the prices conglomerate together where, hey, it makes economic sense for all of those firms to propose those prices. And then you essentially have a true market price or kind of a space, an area where this is the true value for that work and that service. This is what you're going to get if you were to go out into the market. And we achieve this in 30 minutes, an hour, right? It's, it's a crazy different way to look at the marketplace, to, to look at the industry. And it's been yielding great things for our clients. And it's been giving new work to our law firms. And again, challenging a little bit how they're thinking about the market. That's it. So just to pull one example from some of the work that you've pulled, um, yeah. there was there was one reverse auction that we were looking at that had, um, when it started, the spread was 1.275 million between the between the bids. So the highest bid was um, just over 2 million. The lowest bid was just under 800K. Um, and an hour and six minutes later, the spread was from down from 1.27 million down to total spread between four different firms was 270K between the between the firms. That's that's the kind of thing you see all the, all the time, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly it, right? And you get that firm that's way at the top line outlier. And that firm is forced to have that conversation with themselves. And, you know, most of these firms have pricing teams, sophisticated pricing teams or BD teams, or the partners themselves are fairly sophisticated in understanding the pricing, what's profitable for them. So because we're not forcing the firms to make a change, right? We're not saying, hey, the client's always going to select the lowest bidder. In fact, that's not true. It's 50% of the time. So the firms understand that they have to put forth the best pricing they can for the service that they're offering that still makes economic sense for them, that's still profitable for them. And so what we find is that firms make adjustments based on that philosophy and we still achieve that market price, right? So that market price is there. That concept is true. It's not something that we're, you know, artificially deflating all these prices because we're putting downward pressure on these firms. At the end of the day, if the firm doesn't want to make a change and they're confident in the expertise and experience they have, sometimes they won't make a, a change. And we've seen that, right? And then we've seen those firms win also. So really what we are only doing is taking price out of the equation, removing the idea that you have to compete on only one factor, right? Who is the lowest cost bidder? Who's the lowest cost provider? You get to shine on all the other things because the client understands that price is no longer the, the thing that moves the needle. If everyone is providing you a service within that band, within that market price range, 
you get the power, you get enabled to really choose based on experience, expertise, relationship, bench depth, uh, you know, how well is the institutional knowledge that you have with the law firms that are participating. Is that what you see is that is because there's, there's, there's more than just price in each proposal, right? There's yes. people will outline their, their approach, they'll outline their experience in a particular jurisdiction or they're with a particular type of matter. Um, even diversity or, or kinds of things that, that can be included in each one of the proposals that's put out, you know, by a client. And at, and at first, like you can't, there's no way that that uh, client would justify spending $1.275 million more, like spending double the price that maybe they, maybe they might, right. Maybe there's a situation where they might, if they, the experience was, you know, that much more. Um, but is that the, is that the point? Like, bringing bringing that those those wide price differences down and it it almost allows the other parts of the proposal to become like more important right yeah no a hundred percent and you also you know just touching back on price a little bit you get a really good understanding of the thought process and the strategy too sometimes of the law firms so when you have those more expensive law firms like you had mentioned right there could be a situation where they just understand that work. Yeah. They truly just understand that that may be complex, high risk. It may just take that level of expertise. And you as a client, when you see that, when you see that, you know, they made they did only a little drop, they only, only did a little drop or they didn't drop at all. Uh, but the experience, expertise, all the qualitative aspects that like you mentioned in their proposals really, really strong. You as a client, you're very assured that, oh my gosh, I'm getting the best price from that law firm. Just based off of the qualitative information, they're blowing me away. The strategy that they provided, their thought, their philosophy, I agree with. You don't have to double, you know, you don't have to question and think back like, is that fair? Is that fair value for, for paying for that level of work? Because you know and you understand that you've put them through this open, transparent process They've done the best that they can on the pricing and you're very assured. And on the flip side, when you have firms that, that you know, do come down and, and do move, you, can, you also get that same sense. You get that same assurance, you get that same confidence that you really are getting the best work from that firm at the best price that they will provide. Yeah. Is that a question you get a lot? Like, is this a fair price? Is this a good price for this type of work? Yeah, a hundred percent. And again, that is historically tied to the billable hour, right? The concept of that being the simplest, one of the byproducts of that is no one has to think about value mm -hmm. because you get to debate it at the end when the invoice comes. So you don't think about it up until the invoice gets shipped to you. And that's when the client will run back to the law firm and say, I don't want to pay for A, A B, C, D. Looks like this person just had a phone call. I'm not paying her for first and second years. Uh, the partner worked too much on this phase. And then the law firm will come back. You know, they, they already know that they can take that hit, but they'll come back and play hardball with the client. They'll be like, ah, I don't know. You know, can you give us this? Can you give us that? That actually did add value to the work that we did. And they agree at a price at the end. Is that price a good price? Who knows? You have no frame of reference at the end of the day if that invoice was good. Uh, and, and maybe they gave you a great you know, discount on it, right? But that 20%, it's relative to what? Yeah. Uh, it's relative to an hourly rate that at the end of the day isn't really tied to anything other than 
the conception of value for that firm, right? The most expensive firms in the world just so happen to be the most profitable and the largest. So <laughs> does that make sense? Maybe, who knows? Why isn't it you know, the smaller firm down the street that may be better at that work yeah. that's pricing the work the most expensive? Uh, it, nope, it just so happens to be the ones that have the market ability to charge those rates uh, and kind of the name to charge those rates. So again, you, you don't, you have all these things that are very loosely tied to the concept of the value of the work that you're getting. And I think what we have is a little bit more concrete, a little bit more tangible. I, one of the things I think is really interesting with the, the, the bill of hour, and I, I come from the world of services too. So I've done hourly billing and I've done consulting on, on flat rates and, and, and those kinds of things as well. When, whenever I was on hourly billing, it was just, I, there was no, I, it could be a thousand dollar project or a $10,000 project. It was just, there was no way to predict for me on the, on the service provider side, how, what the revenue was going to be on that. And I, and I know it caused frustrations on the client side where they couldn't predict what the cost was going to be based on, you know, just the unpredictability of it. Uh, and I see that same pattern here in all the stuff that you talk about and write about. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, that, that imbalance of value too, because because you're rewarding effort rather than the result, it can actually you know backfire on the law firm side as it can on the client side, yeah. right? Because you can have a situation where the client is thinking, "Hey, I have a million dollar risk if this case goes to trial," and then your law firms work so hard to get it out of a trial that it cost them $1.2 million to do it. And you're like, oh my God, I should have just paid the 1 million to the guy <laughs> to make him go away. And then vice versa, you could have a law firm that has a you know high flying superstar litigator. He knows the judge, knows the jurisdiction, knows the law back and forth, gets your case dismissed in five hours. And he's charging you a million dollar worth value matter, risk matter, for five hours, you know, like, is that fair at the end of the day to the lawyer to charge only five hours? So it also leads to this weird drives of incentives, right? Where you almost as a law firm, you have to make it worthwhile. You understand the value you're providing the client. So you have to make it worthwhile. How do you make it worthwhile is by driving hours. Yeah. That's essentially how you make it so that the pay that you're getting is worth the, the amount that you're doing. So there can be situations where you're disincentivized from being efficient. Uh, and then on the flip side, if the firms are efficient, the client pays so little that there's just this disconnect between what should actually happen, which is generating the most value, the most benefit to the client, and then getting compensated for that yeah. you know, fairly. Uh, and getting compensated for that in a way that makes sense and it's profitable and economical for the firm. Yeah. What's one thing you really want people to remember about this, about true market price? No one knows the right answer. <laughs> and we're all just trying to get to that point. We're at a place where we're building a great foundation for it. We're really building a great marketplace for both law firms and clients to start understanding the value proposition and opening the door to looking at value differently in the legal marketplace and the legal industry. It'll all work out from there. But I think what's so admirable, what's so exciting, what's so interesting about Pursuit is that we're trying. 
Uh, we're not sticking to the idea of the billable hours here, it's hard, it's tough, it might not change. No, every single one of us every day are working towards changing that bit by bit, however we may be able to do that. You know, we might not be able to impact law firms as much as we want to, but bit by bit, we're trying to find that new way, trying to find that different space. And just like I, I talked about earlier, right, it's iterative. So maybe right now we look back and we're like, oh my God, we were so bad at that. Well, like we, we had no idea what we were talking about, this concept of open marketplace. You know, after we've run, you know, we've now run $8 billion of proposals. Maybe when we hit 16 billion, we look back and we say like, oh, we could have done that so much better. We advise these clients wrong, right. but we're making the mistakes. We're building that road. And I think that that is the key thing, right? I, I Again, I challenge law firms, I challenge clients to just try to conceptualize the value of the work that you're doing in a different way. What's a, what's a piece of advice you'd have for somebody who maybe is like you, who is a data storyteller at heart, thinking about a career progression, maybe they're, maybe they're working in finance or some other career that, you know, nothing wrong with those, those fields, but it just doesn't seem to be, you know, one of the places where they can really dig in yeah. the way you were. What would you say to them? to not shy away from projects or things, exploring things that are not immediately in your wheelhouse mm -hmm. or that you're not immediately familiar with. Again, I, you know, finance graduate out of UNLV. And after that, went right to Goldman Sachs, huge investment bank, and thought that was going to be my life. I was going to be some hotshot PE guy. You know, they were going to write the next Wolf of Wall Street about me. How about I the biggest white collar criminal in history. Like I was like, Oh yeah, this is my dream. But then I was like, okay, I really don't like that. But while I was at Goldman, I was doing these internal projects. And when somebody had a question, I was like, Oh yeah, let me look into that. Let me take some time to look into that. I would take some ownership over it and kind of build a little baby in the corner, you know, a side project for myself. And I discovered through that, this passion, this love to do this thing. And then I got an opportunity and the opportunity was in legal. I have no legal background. I didn't know any law firms. When I interviewed for Latham, I had no clue who they were. I was like, who's Latham and Watkins? I don't know. I came from Goldman Sachs, which is like a huge name. You know, for me, I was like, all right, whatever. I'll just, you know, interview and then met the team and got exposed to even more cooler, more crazier stuff and embrace that as well. And I think that progression and that concept of just being open to things and taking a stab at it and going into it and seeing if you like it or not, at least trying is, is so powerful and so poignant, and especially if you're in your 20s, when you're young, you have so much space to make mistakes that it's, it's just, you know, I wish I was there. I'd make even more mistakes now. So <laughs> I love it. Well, I'll, we'll, yeah. we'll land on the question that I know Jim loves to, to ask everybody. So I'll ask you as well, which is how much time between when you wake up in the morning and when you look at your email? Yeah. So I'm pretty bad at this <laughs> because it's almost immediate. It's like <laughs> Wordle and <then laughs> emails and then Slack. But I will say that I don't respond to them. Mm. I'll know what's there. I'll know kind of what's in my itinerary. 
And then I'm a morning gym goer. I'll go to the gym for two hours. I'll come back and that's when I'll actually respond to them. So it's pretty immediate. I, I, I'll be honest about that. I'll look at them right away and I'll see what I need to do for the day. But I don't respond until kind of a little bit later. Interesting. So like 10 seconds. That's, that's yeah. five seconds. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Awake enough that I can understand what I'm reading. And then I'm, <laughs> and then no I'm reading it. I'm a Slack first and then email. So it just depends yeah. on how many Slack nice. messages there were. But I think that's the same thing. Mari, thanks so much yeah. for coming on the show today. This has been great. Of course. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.